passage that Jim will be preaching from this morning is from the Revelation of John, the first chapter, verses 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's Word. Well, it's almost 40 years ago that Rochelle and I came to First of Anne and discovered a people who genuinely love the Lord who treasure his word, and who were making a global difference for Christ. And you still are. Uh, It is a treat to be able to enjoy being with you, and it's an honor to be able to share from this pulpit. Well, it happened in 2016, and it happened once more just a few weeks ago. Uh, Dave Peterson was a contestant on Wheel of Fortune, And he said, soul, flounder, cod, and catfish. The host, Pat, said, that's not right. The next contestant gave the correct answer and said, soul, flounder, cod, catfish. Did you catch the difference? (laughs) One little word, and, was the difference. And the rules specify you have to say just what belongs. And needless to say, the Twitter space was all a Twitter, and outraged at the persnickety ruling. The masses were taking sides over the word and. Have you noticed how everyone seems to have an opinion about everything? I mean, what are your current thoughts about Harry and Meghan, the Kardashians, Hawaiian pizza, and Baby Yoda? And in our virtual age, everyone has a digital soapbox to make his or her opinion known. This has created a world in which there are issue prowlers. You never know who is filming or listening or reading what might make you the latest opinion target. 
You could say or do or even merely think something of which others disapprove, and depending on how many followers the disapprover has, you might find yourself the latest target of heated virtual crowd outrage. In a world that is easily triggered, here is a sober truth. Genuinely following Jesus in a world that doesn't can and will be costly. A genuinely committed follower of Jesus is going to be scorned, mocked, criticized, and I believe we're trending upward. Brace for impact. When what the Bible teaches and what his followers champion challenges the feelings and sensibilities of a world whose credo is find your own truth. So here's the big question. The way our culture is moving, and, and I think that we are moving in a way that is going to progressively get worse, I think that responding well to this question is going to become increasingly difficult. How can followers of Jesus flourish when doing what Jesus wants triggers the ire and criticism of others? Let me say it in a shorter way. How can you stay strong when following Jesus provokes the censure of men? Now, that's not a new problem. It was happening at the time of Jesus, John 12. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Get this, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Many religious leaders who were the influencers of the New Testament world, they, they wanted the likes of their peers more than the approval of God, and so they dialed it back. They were in bondage to the good opinion of men. Pradeep reminded us last week that not even an apostle or an apostle's right-hand man is invulnerable to this influence. Uh, the passage that he read from last week included this verse. Prior to the coming of certain men from James, he, referring to Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So let's make a very realistic risk assessment, shall we? If guys like Peter and Barnabas can be intimidated to compromise by the pressure of the crowd, who are we to think that we're invulnerable? We can easily dial back our devotion when the pressure is turned up. And we desperately need an effective strategy to neutralize this pressure. Well, I am very happy to report that Jesus knows exactly what we need, and he has arranged for a just-in-time delivery to the doorsteps of our hearts of exactly what is needed to fight this threat. John was one of the original apostles. He watched Jesus ascend into heaven 19 days after today. Let me explain. Easter was three weeks ago. 19 days gets us to the ascension of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, is May 14, my birthday. Just thought I'd mention that. And after that date, 19 days from today, after that date, 
John was faithful to Jesus. All of the others, except for Judas, of course, had given their lives for the cause of Christ. But John continued faithful into the 90s. And something incredible happened 60 years after, 60 plus or minus, 60 years after the ascension of Christ. Jesus had a package delivered. He made sure that it got right where John was, which, by the way, was no small thing because he was on a, a somewhat deserted island. And uh, John's term for what this package was, he called it the apocalypsis. Here's his description of what was in the package, just basic summary. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Get this. Blessed is he who reads. Thank you, Taylor. And those who hear, that's you, the words of this prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. The phrase of Jesus Christ means from Jesus Christ. So let's break it down. Father, 60 years after the ascension of Jesus, said, I've got a message, it's time. And he gave it to Jesus. Jesus gave it to an angel. The angel gave it to John, and John wrote it down so that we could have access to it. And it is a message for those who are moving toward the pressure cooker. Well, what's in the message? Well, it talks about the future. It talks about future events. But it also talks about how to prevail. He's telling us about what's coming and embedded in that message is something I call the Overcomer Protocol, which is a series of instructions that are designed to help you be able to prevail as this rapid succession of events unfolds. It says it's coming quickly, or coming soon, it was the first phrase, and that actually means it's going to happen, bam, 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 so quick that if you're not ready before you arrive in that, you won't be ready. In August 2016, the weatherman predicted a storm that would drop three to six inches of rain in South Louisiana. He was wrong. This was a, quote, once in 500 years storm that dumped over 30 inches of rain in greater Baton Rouge. 50,000 to 75,000 structures were flooded. Uh, people fled their homes, sometimes with minutes to spare. Rod Dreyer was helping to unload the rescuers from the National Guard helicopters, and he heard this over and over. We have lost everything. We never expected this. It is never flooded where we live. We were not prepared. Father gave Jesus, who gave an angel, who gave John, the message that will allow us to be prepared as the pressure ramps up. And by the way, here's some really good news. The Overcomer Protocol, the package that was delivered, contains something that has been proven 100% effective in preparing us for what is coming. This is not a COVID vaccine that's 90% or 88% or whatever. You can use the Overcomer Protocol to reprogram your spiritual DNA and you will prevail. 
Now, some of you might say, yeah, but I'm not a pre-trib, you know, I'm a pre-trib rapture guy, so I don't need to worry about that. I don't care if you're pre, mid, post, or something else. If the overcomer protocol works in the most extreme trial, it will work in our time as the pressure is rising. Why wouldn't you use this vaccine that's 100% effective against the kind of pressure that we're dealing with in our culture where it is becoming increasingly challenging to name the name of Jesus and to stand for the things that he stands for? So I'm going to take this vaccine, and I hope you will too. The message of the book of Revelation, which we won't talk about the whole thing, be here a little longer than uh, 28 minutes, but uh, the book consists of four visions, the island vision, the heavenly vision, the desert vision, and the mountain vision. Those were the four visions that John was given. And we're going to focus on something from just the first one, the island vision, the passage that Taylor read, zeroed in on it. And there is embedded in that passage a first principle. A first principle is like the one from which others issue or around which the others are radiating. And we want to examine this first principle because it is the starting point. It is the place where you can begin to reprogram your spiritual DNA in which you will have a cancel-proof faith, even as the cancel pressure is rising in our culture. So what is the first principle? Here it is, stated simply, Jesus' opinion is the only one that matters. So do only what Jesus likes. We love getting likes in our latest post, but this principle teaches that there is only one like that matters. How do you know this? It's actually in the passage that Taylor read. Now let me pull it apart a little bit so that you can see this we read first that he says then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me and having turned I saw seven golden lampstands and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man let's unpack that one phrase he's seeing Jesus in the midst of lampstands what is that what's what does that mean how does that relate to us? Well, first off, the book of Revelation does this uh, 19 times. It actually unpacks anything that is a symbol by giving us an A equals B response. If you don't find that, it's not a symbol. If it is, it's specified exactly what it is. It's A equals B. And in this instance, the lampstands, we learn, have been identified by Jesus. He says, as for the mystery of the seven stars, da da da, da and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Jesus is moving in the midst of some lampstands, but those lampstands are a symbol for the churches, the seven churches. Now, church, ecclesia, actually means called together people. Church, ecclesia in the Bible is not an event. Uh, it is not a time. It's certainly not a building. It's a people. And so to say that Jesus is moving in the midst of a church 
means he's moving in the midst of a people. And it's a good image of those people to describe them as a source of light. So when Jesus was moving amidst those seven lampstands, Ephesus was like a lighthouse of people in Ephesus. Right now, right now, Jesus is moving in the midst of his church in Memphis. And that is not this building. That's youth, his people, who are light. Jesus goes on to, in his message to John, say, by the way, the reason I've told you that, because you could say, okay, Jesus is moving in the midst of us as light. What's the implication of that? He spells out for us his message to Ephesus, and he actually refers back to this fact, which tells us what's really going on. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, and then he specifies a number of things that he really likes about the church in Ephesus. But then he says... Uh, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You see what's going on here? Jesus is walking in the midst of the lampstands, which is his people who are to be light. And because of that ID, he is able to say, and here is what is wrong, and here is what is right. To describe Jesus as the one who walks amongst the lampstands is to say, he is the one whose opinion matters. Now, he also tells them how to fix things. A little later in his message, he says, Therefore, remember from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. You see what's happening? He's moving amongst the lampstands, and the point that is very clear and obvious from this message is that as the one who moves in the midst of the lampstands, which is us, he is the one who is evaluating, whose opinion matters alone. He's like a doctor whose diagnosis has five parts. Here's where you're healthy. Here's where you're not. Here's what you need to do. Here's what will happen if you ignore me. Here's what will happen if you do follow through with what I'm saying. In that statement that I gave you, Jesus' opinion is the only one that matters. That word only, small word, isn't it? It's kind of like and on Wheel of Fortune. What's the difference if I pull that word out? Uh, you know, Jesus is one whom we please, or Jesus is the only one. Well, if I turn him into just one among competing interests, that means do some stuff Jesus likes, but do some stuff that others like. But when you put the word only in, what you're saying is Jesus is the only one for whose pleasure I seek to live. I'm not trying to please anyone else except Jesus. Now that, by the way, is the key to spiritual survival. If you're trying to please both men and Jesus, you will fail. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. It's not going to work. You've got to decide. Jesus is the only... Jesus, and 
I sometimes say Jesus and sometimes say Jesus's. I'm getting messed with my head, but Jesus's is the only opinion that matters. Babe Ruth smacked one high and hard along the third baseline, and the crowd thunders it, its applause when it sailed into the stands beyond the fence, and everyone thought the babe had just hit another home run. But the umpire ruled that the ball had drifted left. He determined that it was a foul ball and called it a strike, and the stands went crazy. The babe confronted the umpire. There are 40,000 fans who know that was a fair ball. To which the umpire replied, yes, but mine is the only opinion that matters. <laughs> of Jesus, we can say, his is the only opinion that matters. He alone walks in the midst of the candle stands, and he can remove a candle stand. And he can tell you how your flame can burn brighter. I want to hear him. I want to bless you first because I know some of your stories. And in this room are those who have sought to do what is right before the Lord, despite being criticized or ostracized. For some, the pain is making you wince even now. In the first service, I had some come up and I prayed for them because they're dealing with it right now. Jesus sees your heart and he applauds you for doing what is right. You know, in uh, verse 3, it says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear and heed. Blessed means, oh, to be congratulated. That's Jesus going, yes. And to the extent that you have made a stand for Christ and said, I will do what he wants, regardless of what others think, I live for his pleasure alone. Way to go. Good job. Jesus' opinion of me is the only opinion that matters. Frankly, that's sobering, isn't it? But it's also encouraging. Because in the final analysis, I am not accountable to others' opinion. <laughs> I live for the pleasure of one, Jesus. And ultimately, it doesn't matter what someone else says or thinks. Frankly, hear this. Men don't have what it takes. Men do not have, they don't know all things. They're not everywhere present. They can't read hearts. Jesus can. Let me take things one step further. It doesn't matter what other people think. It's going to take you a minute to wrap your mind around this. It also doesn't matter what I think. I am not qualified to evaluate me. Up to this point, the world may have been going, yeah, that's right, Jim, preach it. What other people think doesn't matter because you need to find your own truth. You be the judge of you. Don't listen to anybody else. Preach it, bro. Find what works for you. Wrong. Find what works for him. Jesus is the only one moving amongst the lampstands. He didn't say, I saw Jesus, who was dressed regally as a king, as a lord, Plus, I saw these five other people that have amazing Twitter accounts or whatever. Find what works for Jesus. Jesus is the only one moving amongst the lampstands. The only opinion that matters is his, not someone else's. 
and not mine. Focus on him, on what he thinks, and live for him alone. Do you ever wonder how Paul did it? How did Paul, I mean, you read some of these passages where he was, you know, imprisoned and shipwrecked and all these different things. How did he pull it off? He, by the way, would say, and on top of that, there's the concern for all the churches. He would say, all that stuff is in the small potato category. Here's his secret. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you. In other words, that's a way of saying, I'm looking at Jesus as the one walking through the lampstand. It is a small thing that I be examined by you or by any human court. And then get this. In fact, I do not even examine myself. My opinion of me doesn't matter because I am not qualified. For I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Paul's ministry motivation flourished by embracing our first principle, God's opinion alone. I do what only Jesus affirms. I will do what, his li- what he likes. Your opinion of me doesn't matter. My opinion of me doesn't matter. The Lord's is the only opinion of me that matters. And for Paul, this was liberating. He was freed from the crushing weight of criticism from the cancel culture of his day. He's undistracted to go all in, all out for Jesus. By the way, Paul's critics were within the church. Paul used this strategy not just to process the world's disapproval, but his self-appointed judges within the church. He says, it's a small thing that I be examined by you, Corinthian believers. How do I know whether I'm doing well at this or not? Let me give you three diagnostic questions. These are questions you can ask yourself to evaluate, am I living solely for his pleasure? The first question is, who am I listening to? Just follow you around all day and evaluate to what extent am I trying to hear what the Lord has to say versus listening to everything else. You know, tuning into the news, checking my whatever I look at online, or am I saying, God, I want to listen to you. Listen to the psalmist. I rise before dawn and cry for help. In other words, he woke up before the sun came up and said, God, give me what I need. I wait for your words. My eyes anticipate the night watches that I may meditate on your word. I go ahead and shut off everything online and I check out so I can just hear you at night and think about what are you teaching me? What do you want me to do? If that's not describing you or me, then we're not where we need to be. Question number two, to what extent am I silent where God has spoken? This one, I think, in our culture is really ramping up. Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. Are there things Jesus says in the Bible that I'm kind of dialing back? Because if I, I know if I was to speak up, I would reap the ire of people around me. That's a sign that I need to work on making Jesus 
the only one for whose pleasure I live. Third question, am I man-pleasing at God's expense? Uh, Am I posting, saying, presenting myself in ways that are designed to improve my status among men? And when I lose the good opinion of men, do I get depressed? That's a sign that I am not living for the good opinion of Jesus alone. So what do I need to do? Help me, Jim. Help me figure out how I can grow this ability. Because I want to live for Jesus alone, but I also know that's something I need to develop. Great question. The Bible outlines a number of exercises that you can do. Think of this as kind of a a Jim's spiritual DNA workout, okay? Here's a number of exercises you can do. You can pick one of them, do it for 30 days, and you will move the needle. Here they are. Uh, Give God a blank check. At the very beginning of your day, invite Jesus to mess with your day. Now, I'm a checklist guy. How, by the way, so confession time. How many of you are, are with me? Okay, I, I see that. Yes, Allie. Okay. Yeah, I like going through my checklist. Sometimes I even do something and put a checkbox on it because it just feels so good, even though, yeah. <laughs> Give God permission to mess with your checklist and say, God... I want to live for your pleasure. So if there's something on your list that's not on my list, I want to embrace it. And I want to, in that moment, say, God, show me what you want me to do, to say, to think. By the way, if you pray at the beginning of the day, God, mess with my checklist. Then when he does, and chaos erupts, you can say, thank you, God, for answering my prayer. It's win-win. Number two exercise, convert criticism to trust. That sounds very counterintuitive, doesn't it? It is possible to actually transform criticism into trust. And we don't have to look any further than the cross. Listen to this description of what Jesus did on the cross. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Can you imagine that? On the cross, if anyone had reason to blast, it was Jesus. But he didn't do that. How did he do it? Here's the participial phrase that tells us. But he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. It's easy when we're being slandered or reviled or criticized to fixate on our detractors and play the silly game of responding in kind. Jesus used a very different strategy. He converted criticism into trust. He said, I am going to trust you, God, because you judge righteously. I don't care what they are saying. I don't care what they are doing. Your good opinion of me is all that matters, and I'm going to trust you. And so when you're feeling the heat from the people around you, That's a wonderful opportunity for you to look past them and see the one who is walking in the midst of the candlesticks and to affirm, I trust you to get it right, despite what they're saying. And so you use that occasion of criticism to actually grow your trust muscles. God sees the true state of things. He deals in true justice. Trust him. And then number three, look for nuggets. If 
Now, I said this earlier, uh, not in this exact form, but if I am doing, thinking, saying only what Jesus likes, then it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks, right? You can answer. Yeah, okay, good. It wasn't, it wasn't robust, but it was kind of there, so I'll, I'll, I'll take it. Understanding that is the first step toward flourishing when your faith comes under fire. God's opinion, Jesus' opinion is the only one that matters. But here's a qualification I'm going to put on that. We can use what others say as a catalyst to better understand what Jesus wants of us. We can, when your spouse, well, when your spouse comes to you and says, it really hurt me when you said or did this. Jesus does not want you to say, wifey, in the final analysis, it really doesn't matter what you think. <laughs> and it will be especially bad if you say this, wifey, Pastor Jim said, in the final analysis, it really doesn't matter what you think. <laughs> bad plan. Evaluate how words from your spouse can give you insight into what Jesus wants. How he wants you to become a better person, particularly a better spouse. We use the hard things that others say to ask Jesus the question, and Jesus sees our heart, show me. You know, I'm giving you permission to put your finger on anything in my heart that is not as it should be. Search me and see if there's anything in me. Uh, the more that person is a voice of wisdom, the higher the quotient of wisdom you're going to gain to be able to better do what only Jesus wants as you're mining for nuggets from what people say. Let's come back to the starting point, okay? How can we stay strong? We ask this question. How can we stay strong when doing what Jesus wants provokes the censure of men? And the answer is affirm this simple principle. Jesus' opinion is the only one that matters. And I would say in any moment where you are tested, affirm that and look past the critic and see Jesus walking in the midst of the lampstands who sees your heart, who understands, and who will be saying to the extent that you have chosen to do what he wants. We live for him. Nobody else. So I recommend every day, you start your day by saying something like this. I want to live for your pleasure alone. I will only succeed with your help. So help me. When following you provokes the disapproval of others, prompt me to recall that your good opinion of me is all that matters. And if your heart is saying yes to what I've just prayed, then let's pray it together. I'll pray out loud, you can pray silently, and you can declare to the Lord right now, I want to live for you alone, regardless of what men think. You ready? Father, we want to live for your pleasure alone. We will only succeed with your help, so please help us. When following you provokes the disapproval of others, prompt us to recall that your good opinion of us is all that matters. We are trusting you, the one who is standing in the midst of our lampstand. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. If you prayed that prayer with me, I have a word of encouragement for you. It comes from this verse. For the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth that he might strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. Did you pray that prayer with me? Did you declare to the Lord, my heart is yours? Well, then that verse says that God, his eyes are moving to and fro. He's moving through this room. And when he sees someone whose heart is completely his, he says that he might strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. What it means is when you say, God, I want to do what you want alone, he locks eyes with you and starts rolling up his sleeves. Get ready to see what God, our difference maker, is going to do in you and through you today.